This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. This is a Thinking Aloud podcast from the BBC. And for more details and much, much more about Thinking Aloud, go to our website at bbc.co.uk. Hello. For years, I've dined out on the story of how I once met John Lennon in the old crack pub in Liverpool. Yes, I told anyone who was still listening, he was in there with Cynthia, drinking his favourite black velvet, you know, Guinness and fizzy wine. And on his way to the bar, he actually said, Hi, Laurie, as he passed my table. Well, I relished that anecdote because, like so many other Liverpudlians, it became almost a cultural necessity in the 60s to identify with one or other of the Fab Four. Some relished Paul's sensitivity, others tuned into George's emerging mysticism or Ringo's no-nonsense ordinariness. But I was, I was always a Leninist. He was the revolutionary. He wanted to change, well, the system. If anybody can put on paper what... Our government and the American government, etc., and the Russian, Chinese, what they are actually trying to do, you know, and what they think they're doing, I'd be very pleased to know what they think they're doing. I think they're all insane. Now, it's not just a bit strange, it's just insane. Nobody knows all these people in the street, and the, uh, half the people watching this are going to be saying, oh, what's he saying, what's he saying? You know, that you are being run by people who are insane, and you don't know. And if you wanted hard evidence of John's radical credentials, it came in 1968 with his song, You Say You Want a Revolution, with its anthemic declaration, We All Want to Change the World. But as more hard-headed and keen-eared listeners than me were quick to point out, the song's real message was in the second verse. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know you can count me out? Lennon may have gone on to produce more radical sentiments in Power to the People, but that 68 cautionary verse provides the perfect title for a new book which asserts, if you want a revolution, beware of how it might turn out, because you might one day rue the one you get. That book is entitled, well, what else? You say you want a revolution, radical idealism and its tragic consequences. And its author, who now joins me, is Daniel Shiro, Professor of International Studies and Sociology at the University of Washington. Daniel, before we discuss your study, perhaps you could, uh, could you provide me with your definition of revolution? The revolution is a thorough change in, at the very least, the political system and usually much more than that, the social system, the economic system. So the revolutions which I discuss in my book all attempted to do that, and the successful ones obviously did. Revolutions take place always when there's been a failure to reform things that have needed change for some time. If you look at what has become really the iconic revolution and was for a long time the French Revolution, you see that the political system, the economic system, the society had cried out for change, for, and the elites knew that, but they were never able to carry these out. And finally, the system cracked. The same thing happened with the Russian Revolution, the, the Chinese, and even the American one, which was on the whole less bloody, 
if the British Parliament had given some representation to the colonies, there really would have been no need for a revolution. Among your examples, I was rather surprised to see Hitler's seizure of power described as a revolution. Yes, well, analysts of revolution, by and large, have been scholars more on the left than on the right, at least those who have favoured revolutions. And, of course, uh, fascism, whether Mussolini or uh, Hitler, didn't fit that pattern. In fact, Hitler wanted to revolutionize German society, and he went quite far in doing it. If he hadn't lost the war, German society would have wound up being very different from what it was uh, during the Weimar days or even during the imperial period before then. Uh, The political system was drastically changed, of course, but the whole economic system, too. Much greater state intervention, state control, and control over people in a way that had really not existed before. So I do think that it was a revolutionary movement, and Hitler thought so. Uh, Mussolini certainly thought so, and their followers certainly thought so. As we've already indicated, there's a wide range of examples in your study. Tell me about what they might be said to have in common. Political failure. Sometimes there are just great catastrophes. If you look at the Russian Revolution, it's very clear that long before... Russia should have had a reform of its political system, making it more open, more democratic. And there were attempts to do that, and repeatedly they were shot down by the Tsar. So what triggers these things is just the failure to address a whole host and a growing host of contradictions and failures, which are not addressed because of a conservative reaction that stops that change. When you're talking about the idea of having chains, you write about the way that it is the moderates who often begin the process of forcing change and uh, and leading revolutions, but they, you talk about the way in which they lose control. Describe that process to me. Originally, it's people who understand the need for reform who try to bring it about. If the authorities, the political power doesn't respond, then they gradually, or at least some of them, become more radical. In the United States, in the case of the American Revolution, uh, originally there was very little demand for independence. There was demand for greater recognition on the part of uh, the British government and parliament. Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, these were not revolutionary people, but they wound up thinking, well, we're not going to get anywhere unless we have a political revolution. This is even more the case in uh, revolutions that occur in more authoritarian regimes. For example, in Iran, liberals for decades tried to reform the system, and they were particularly vulnerable because they operated out in the open, and the Shah's police could arrest them, could torture them. And eventually the system cracked because of the Shah's absolute refusal to grant more democracy and have a more open system. What typically happens is that the moderates who often start this revolutionary movement don't want to change everything too quickly, and they tend to underestimate the anger that has built up. It certainly happened in the French Revolution when people like Lafayette or Condorcet didn't realize how angry the Parisian population was. There had been starvation, there were food prices, they were too high, they they felt oppressed. And so they saw that the very angry part of the population 
responded much better to more radical demands. And particularly if the revolution seems threatened by outside forces, which was certainly the case in the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, and in the Iranian Revolution as well, the, the radicals tried to show quite successfully that they were threatened from the outside, then people rallied to these radic radicals who promised greater and more rapid reforms. And the more centrist, more liberal, more moderate revolutionaries are pushed out of the way, uh, often executed. You see how that happened in Russia, for example. The, at first, the, the, the February Revolution in 1917, uh, those who come to power are moderate socialists, people like Kerensky, they don't realize how angry much of the population is about the war and the suffering, and they don't pull out of the war. They don't make changes fast enough. And that opens the way for what was a rather small radical minority, namely the Bolsheviks, who promise to end the war and change everything more quickly. You suggest that once violence starts in any sort of radical or revolutionary struggle, things quickly spin out of control. Expand on that for me, would you? One of the things that happens when the radicals take control is that the reaction becomes even stronger, that is, the conservative reaction. You know, at the start of the French Revolution, quite a few aristocrats said, yes, we do need to change. Yes, things haven't changed fast enough. But when the radicals became more powerful, the the reaction against them by those who had formerly been in power and those with money and authority, uh, they panic and they fight ever more strongly. So what happens then is that uh, in what becomes a civil war, if the revolutionaries don't uh, create a police force and an armed force to fight for the revolution and against their own counter-revolutionaries, then the revolution fails. And so they see the need, if they're going to have a successful revolution, to apply uh, greater force. And once they've done that and created a repressive apparatus, this is what they use to stay in control. And you want to give some examples of the ways in which, when reform does occur, it's possible to avoid the revolution. I mean, one of the examples you cite is Britain itself, Britain's industrialization uh, in the 19th to the mid-20th century. How all this was accomplished, this dramatic transformation of society without a revolution? You don't need a revolution to have social change or economic change. The world between 1800 and 1900 changed drastically. Between 1900 and 2000, it changed drastically. And there weren't revolutions everywhere. So it, British parliamentary system, which was hardly democratic uh, in uh, 1800, a few hundred families really controlled the whole system, but it was a system that was open to reform. And though there was resistance, gradually there was reform. More people were allowed to vote. There was the Reform Act uh, in the 1830s, another one in the 1860s, and those continued. And that accommodated itself to the technological and economic changes which were taking place. Uh, you could say the same thing about most countries. After all, most Western European countries didn't have and didn't need such a revolution. They accommodated themselves to change. You want to argue that really all modern revolutions are eventually corrupted. But does that really apply to the anti-colonial third world revolutionary struggles in the 20th century? 
Uh, absolutely, and actually that's, that's a really tragic story. Algeria is a terribly tragic case. This was a country that, if, first of all, if the French had agreed to reforms earlier, gradually Algeria would have become independent in a moderate way, uh, remained associated with France the way, say, Commonwealth countries are with Britain. But the French didn't do that. They repressed, and the more they repressed, the angrier the population got. They eventually were thrown out. And at first, the Algerian revolutionary government, like the one in Angola or, say, uh, uh, quite a few typically African and some Asian countries, they were socialists, they were going to bring about a new world, and it didn't work. They mishandled the administration. And so when they found that there was some resistance to what they were doing, they became more repressive. They began to loot their own populations and corrupted the systems that they ruled. There was this great hope in the 1960s. For example, Nasser in Egypt, the Ba'athist party in Syria and Iraq, these revolutionary regimes turned out to abandon the revolution. Let me bring this argument closer to home, or, or closer, shall I say, to your home, because you write, in a relatively stable, well-educated society with freedom of expression and a basic faith in science, the fanatics and liars can be marginalised. But when these beneficial conditions no longer exist, and when at the same time critical problems can no longer be successfully handled, moderate reformism will no longer prevail. I wonder if your study of revolutions tells anything about the world today, in particular your own part of the world, the United States. Is it a dangerous moment there for democracy? Is all this talk of not paying any attention to the results of the election leading us down a pathway towards the type of frustrating situations you characterise in other societies? Absolutely. If uh, you had been uh, interviewing me or someone else 20 years ago, and that person had said, the United States could be approaching a revolutionary moment, you would have laughed. (laughs) The United States was the model, as Britain was and some other Western democracies, of accommodating themselves to change. That stopped being the case some time ago. Reform stalled, whether you're talking about racial issues, whether you're talking about economic inequality, whether you're talking about, in the United States, a confusing, corrupt, and excessively complicated dysfunctional healthcare system. These are not new issues. Actually, the present pandemic has increased that because it's a, it's a new crisis. And you see exactly the kind of polarization and the extreme left and even more the extreme right have become much stronger. This is the situation that the United States is in now. Reform has been blocked now really since the 1980s and the progress made earlier in race relations in improving the economic well-being of the poorer parts of the population or all these accumulate and people become angrier and angrier and those in the middle of the moderate liberals who say, well, wait, wait, we're going to fix it. After a while, there are more and more people who say, well, it's not being fixed. The United States is in a very dangerous situation. So unless we find a way to carry out the necessary moderate forms in five years and ten years, or perhaps sooner than that, we'll be in a state of near civil war. Daniel Chiro, thank you very much for the moment.
Shostakovich's 1947 festive overture, which was celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Russian October Revolution. But that celebration sounded increasingly hollow as the Soviet Union began its lurch towards totalitarianism, became, for many former apostles, the god that failed. And that was far from being the only 20th century revolution that was to disenchant its original devotees by abandoning its libertarian origins, adopting repressive forms of social control and murdering its opponents. Not that this history seems to have done much to dampen the hopes of those who continue to search and occasionally find examples of a regime which radically changes the status quo, which replaces repression and discrimination with democracy and equality. Well, for the most recent example of such what could be called ideological optimism, perhaps, we need to turn to the territory of Rojava the Kurdish name for the autonomous region of northern Syria. It's a strip of land that runs from east to west along the border with Turkey. Here's a 2014 clip from BBC's Our World, Rojava, Syria's secret revolution. For three years now, these front lines have defended a little-known revolution. It's not only ISIS trying to create a new society in the Middle East... In northern Syria, left-wing Kurdish radicals are trying to build a mini-state in an unprecedented political experiment. But this is no caliphate. It's a grassroots take on representative democracy they say is based on equality, pluralism and self-sufficiency. Their enemies say they're an atheistic one-party state with links to terrorism but they claim they're a model of tolerance for the entire region. Syria's secret revolution has created a place like no other in the Middle East. Welcome to Rojava. But how radical is the Rojava regime? How well does it live up to its ideals... Might it be an example of a truly successful revolution? Well, these are questions for my next guest. She's Rahila Gupta, who's a journalist, author and activist. Rahila, thank you so much for joining us. But listeners to this will be aware of the Syrian civil war, which began in 2011 with that uprising against Bashar al-Assad, sometimes called the Syrian revolution. Now, it's well rehearsed that this uprising, which initially demanded democratic reforms, became a mass anti-government movement and ended in a civil war in which many thousands of people have died, some at the hands of Islamic jihadists, but most as a result of the Syrian regime and its Russian and Iranian allies. Now, you've researched a much less well-known element in the Syrian story, this revolution in Rojava. Tell me a little bit, perhaps first of all, about Rojava and the size of the territory we're talking about. It's a kind of movable feast because, as you said in the introduction, it's a narrow strip along the northern border. But ever since they liberated Raqqa and Deir Ezzor, it actually occupies more than 25% of Syrian territory. So if you were to compare it to Britain, it's, let's say, more than twice the size of Wales. 
I would say about four to five million. When it was just the northern strip, it was predominantly Kurdish. And then uh, Raqqa and Deir Ezzor is predominantly Arab. So the Kurds now are not uh, a dominant part of society, but they were when it was a smaller territory. Now, let's talk a little bit about Rojava's path to self-government and how was that relative self-government, that relative autonomy, gained? So, basically, they do draw inspiration from the ideas of Abdullah Ojalan, who is the leader of the Kurdish independence struggle and has been in prison since 1999. So, Ojalan began as the classic freedom fighter for national liberation, organising along Marxist-Leninist principles, and you would say, you know, they were criticised for the violence of their fighting, just like the IRA or the Tamil Tigers. But when Ojalan was uh, in prison, his thinking underwent a sea change, and he gave up on the idea of a Kurdish nation, because he argued that actually nation-states are nothing to aspire to, they're built, especially if they're built on ethnic lines that they're essentially anti-democratic and patriarchal. So interestingly, influenced partly by the work of European feminists and the Kurdish women revolutionaries uh, he had met, he came to the conclusion that women should be at the forefront of any revolution. And basically, uh, he was also influenced by somebody called Murray Bookchin, who uh, supported the idea of municipal democracy and had drawn up a template for direct grassroots, non-state democracy. So from about 2005, the Kurdish diaspora had been putting these ideas into practice. And in Syria, before the Arab Spring, under the radar of the state, Kurdish cultural, educational and welfare organizations had been run along these principles. So when the Arab Spring took place and gave them the opportunity then to put these ideas into wider practice. And so really, it was a bloodless revolution. And the army literally just walked away because Assad was busy with people in the south of southern Syria. Just tell me a little bit more about the extent of this Rojava experiment, uh, the role of women, the way in which this has changed, the role they play on the battlefield, in the political system, other critical changes which you seem to fit into the concept of revolution. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I absolutely think revolution is the right term for it because it upends everything that has gone before it. So in 2014, the women's ministry set up, for example, and they introduce a battery of laws criminalising polygamy, forced marriage, honour crimes, etc. And all the um, laws that uh, disadvantage women in terms of inheritance or custody of children, they're all overturned. Sharia courts are banned, and we in Britain have Sharia councils. So they recognise how important uh, a role religion plays in the oppression of women. So it's been banished to the private sphere. That's one. Then in terms of the structure and the the governance, the self-administration structures, you start from the neighbourhood level. Say, ten streets come together and they will elect a group of people who will represent their interests and that that will be shared equally between men and women. They will have committees, they'll decide well, health is important or education is important and then uh, these people will elect uh, representatives to the next level up, to the city level and the regional level. 
And you want to say it's a blueprint for the kind of society many many people have been campaigning for all their lives. Yet it's the best kept secret in the world. And I want to ask you, how long is it going to last? How precarious is it? Because 2019 saw a Turkish invasion of northern Syria after Donald Trump withdrew his troops from Syria. What, what's happened since then? Is Israel under more threat? As far as Turkey is concerned, they want to obliterate the whole of the Kurdish revolution because they think it has an impact on their own Kurdish population and, and the level of unrest that they see in Turkey itself. The world's powers are interested in that piece of land. 80% of Syria's gas and oil reserves are based in Rojava, so you can see where the interest lies. Assad has found this really convenient, this uh, Turkish invasion, because it's given him an excuse to re-enter Rojava. And Rojava has played such a delicate balancing act between the various forces, because initially when it allied with America, they, they, they have no illusions that America is interested in their future, their ideas, their society, their politics. They knew that they needed America to ward off ISIS. Now they are trying, or they're hoping that with, by talking to Russia and getting Russia involved, that they might be able to persuade Assad to maintain a level of autonomy over their own affairs so that they can continue with their democratic experiment. Kenan Malik, the, the writer Kenan Malik, he, he praised much that went on in Rojava, but he also said we should be careful of romanticising it, pointing out to claims about PYD having too much power in a supposedly decentralised power structure, the silencing of dissent. I mean, is there a danger of romanticism? Rojava does hold out the promise of another world. It is a moment of hope. Uh, and if that is romanticism, then so be it. But it is a romanticism that is constantly on alert. We are constantly watchful for any signs of centralization of power, of censorship. And there have been examples of that. Some hostile media have been shut down. People working for NGOs have been wrongfully arrested by the Kurds and taken to the Americans for interrogation in the belief that they were working for ISIS. And you would want to argue, would you, that um, you can create socialism in one small strip of land? Is this a possibility? It is really difficult to do that. There's a huge amount of fragility associated with it. I think that the more people who would know about it, the more likelihood that we would preserve its future. Rahil Gupta, thank you very much. Now, let me indulgently conclude with uh, well, a favourite quotation of mine, really. It comes from the situationist Raoul Van Egem. It's a quotation that dramatically captures the terrible failure of all revolutions that fail to take proper account of normal, everyday passions and the desire for ordinary freedom. Van Egem wrote, People who talk about revolution and class struggle without referring explicitly to everyday life, without understanding what is subversive about love and what is positive in the refusal of constraints, such people have a corpse in their mouth. Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds just worthy of a 
Podcast from BBC Radio 4. Children of the Stones. The village is the sort of place people get murdered in in old TV shows. A village surrounded by an ancient stone circle. The stones are thirsty. A village with an impossible secret. The stones are changing people. I look them straight in the eye and I see what's there. Witches. Bliss. Subscribe to Children of the Stones on BBC Sounds. She's coming. Happy day.